2 Corinthians chapter 3, and that's on page 965. Before I do that, I'm just going to pray for Karen and pray for our time. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 965. Father, we do pray for our time together. Thank you so much for the way that you've opened Karen's mouth to speak um, plainly about the Lord Jesus at work. And we do pray that um, yeah, long hours and hard work um, wouldn't um, shift their eyes and the, their focus at KPF away from speaking about you and, and living for you. We do pray that you'd also give them wisdom in how to um, be following up with colleagues after they come to events and do pray that you'd help us to understand your word now. Amen. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 7 and going all the way to chapter 4, verse 6. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses's face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put on a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Brian, thanks so much for reading. And Karen, thanks for being really willing to uh, share with us your experience. Um, if you just join us, we've been looking, we've just started this new series in 2 Corinthians. And our explicit aim in this series is to persuade you to reorient your lives around the gospel, around the speaking ministry about Jesus. Um, and many people, I guess, have ideas about what gospel work is, you know, doing good for the community um, or impacting the culture in the office. And all those things are good things. 
But for Paul, uh, gospel work is specifically speaking boldly about Jesus. And whether you call yourself a Christian here or not, uh, my aim is to persuade you to be part of something bigger, something more significant, and that is to be speaking about him. As we all know, uh, there are real challenges in doing so. Uh, there's fear or uh, the fear of what people think of us. How would people think? How would they react? And maybe not just fear. Uh, we just don't want to be weird. I mean, it's okay to be a reasonable or a balanced Christian, or something that people can find tolerable. Uh, but when you're too keen with your views or with your speech, uh, that gets a bit weird. And so the temptation, I guess, for many of us is to dumb down or maybe to round off the ages to make things more palatable um, because of the fear of men. But also there's a fear of rejection. Uh, what if they don't respond well? What if what I say doesn't seem to work? Uh, fear, uh, one of the major obstacles of being fully on board the gospel. So where will we find courage to speak? Now, here's another issue. Um, I think that because silence or maybe trying to temper or to make things a bit easier, well, it offers the opportunity to shine. Um, if you like, it's my pair of sunglasses, it's to be really glorious in this world, uh, to look flashy, uh, to succeed, if you like, um, to look glorious. A friend yesterday I spoke to, um, uh, I found out that he was rejected from the Church of England because he held to the biblical views of marriage. And so there was temptations for him to tweak or to temper his views in order to shine. And again, I don't need to say to you in the secular world, uh, it has secular values. And to succeed in the world, uh, you need to subscribe to its values. So on one hand, uh, you have uh, the call to, to speak boldly about Jesus. Uh, that looks weak, sometimes stammering, stuttering speech. On the other hand, you have the opportunity to stay silent or to maybe um, temper with the message a little, providing the opportunity to shine. So where will we find the courage to speak, especially when staying silent offers the opportunity to shine? You see, 2 Corinthians 3 is an excellent passage to think through this issue because it's all about boldness, but specifically bold speech. I look down to the passage for me, chapter 2, verse 17. In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Chapter 3, verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very, very bold. Chapter 3, verse 17. Uh, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Uh, freedom as in freedom to speak boldly. Chapter 4, verse 1. Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Uh, do you see what Paul is saying? As you understand this ministry, uh, this ministry of mine, uh, this work, uh, in it you will find courage. And so what he wants to say to us today is this. Well, if you want to find courage, if you want to be bold, uh, you need to understand my work, my ministry. Because in the ministry, what you find is the overwhelming glory of God. In the new covenant ministry, there is sheer, unadulterated, surpassing glory of the new covenant speech. Well, that's what Paul wants to see. It's a big idea. But why does he think so? Well, that brings us to our very first point. 
uh, there on your handout, because there's more glory in the new covenant than the old. There's more glory. Look at verse 7 of our passage today. Chapter 3, verse 7. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of his glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For there was glory in the ministry of condemnation. The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more for what is permanent have glory. I think Paul's point is pretty obvious there. Uh, there's the old and the new covenant. The new covenant, well, there's just more glory in the new covenant. Uh, verse 8, there's more. Verse 9, it must far exceed it in glory. Uh, verse 10, it surpasses it. Verse 11, much more for what is permanent have glory. Uh, his point, well, there's more. There's more glory in the gospel work. But this stage is worth pausing and asking, what does Paul mean by glory? What does he mean by glory? And the thing to remember is that Bible words have always Bible meaning. And in the Bible, there are two sort of main meanings of the word glory. The first meaning, I think we're more familiar, uh, glory as in renown, honor, or fame, uh, to give someone glory. We get that. But the second meaning uh, in the Bible is speaking about the glory of God, the physical presence of God, uh, the heavy weighty, tangible presence of God in the Old Testament. The picture you have in your head is the glory cloud in Exodus 19 coming down out of heaven, resting on Mount Sinai. The presence of God, uh, the glory of God. And the way that Paul is using glory here in 2 Corinthians, well, it's clearly thinking of the latter, the physical presence of God, the glory that Moses saw that caused his face to shine. If you like, the glory rubbed off on his cheeks, and his forehead, and caused it to shine. I look at verse 7. Now the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face. See, Moses, his shining face, it reflected the physical presence of God. There was such glory that the Israelites couldn't gaze. But for all that glory, uh, the tangible presence was there in the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Covenant, the new covenant has more. It has more glory. Verse 9. The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. But we ask, well, in what way? In what way is there more glory in the new covenant? In what sense is there more? Well, that brings us to our second point. There's more glory because there's unveiled glory for not just one, but all in the new covenant. I look to verse 12 of our passage today. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ it is taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree 
of glory to another. Uh, do you see what Paul says in the New Covenant? There's unveiled glory for all. I mean, these are not easy verses. Lots of scholarly ink has been spilt over these verses. Um, as I was reading it, you can sense uh, they're quite dense verses. And we'll, try, we'll do our best here to try to understand what's going on. And the point to realize is that in the Old Covenant, well, only one man, uh, one man, Moses, had unveiled access to the visible glory of God. Uh, just Moses and not the people. Well, why? Well, Moses is quoting from Exodus 32, 34 here. And, uh, well, you might know that the people in that bit in the narrative, well, they really, really messed up. The image that we need to have in mind is uh, a wife on her wedding day going off to sleep with another man. And that is what Israel did in Exodus. Uh, you know the story, the Ten Commandments. Uh, Moses gives the Ten Commandments, and he goes up to the mountain to speak with God. But what happens? Well, when he comes down, the wife is caught in adultery on the wedding day, worshipping a golden calf, having a pagan sex orgy on the side. What is the just outcome of that? A divorce. That is the right outcome. The covenant is broken. The marriage covenant is broken. But in the very last minute, what happens? Moses, he stands in the gap. He intercedes. God, he forgives the people. And the old covenant is restored. But that's the issue with the Old Covenant, because the relationship, as you can imagine, is really fragile. Uh, there was forgiveness, but limited forgiveness. Uh, the hearts, they were hardened. The history of Israel is a history of hardened hearts. And access to God, well, it was limited. It was a veiled access to God. Look at verse 13. Moses, who would put a veil over his face, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. And so Moses, he had to veil his shining face, if you like, the curtain in the tabernacle or the temple, to protect sinful people from seeing the reflected glory of God. Because the outcome is death. See, the veil was a protective screen to protect the people. And so Moses, he was not bold. He was very afraid, in fact, because the people would die from the reflected glory of God. And so he had to put a veil over his face. All of them had a restricted view of God. Behind a screen, behind a curtain, behind a veil. Only one man, Moses, spoke face to face with God. Only one man had unveiled access to God. But how about now? Look at verse 18. And we all, we all, with unveiled face, are beholding the glory of the Lord. Do you see what Paul is saying? If you call yourself a Christian today, if you have the Spirit of God in you, that is like Moses speaking face to face with God in the tent. We all, we all with unveiled face, are seeing the glory of God. In the Old Covenant, limited forgiveness, hardened hearts, veiled access to God. In the new covenant, the definitive forgiveness of sins, soft hearts, the spirit of God dwelling in you, there's unveiled glory for all. And so we ask, where do we find courage? Paul says, we are bold. We are very 
very bold. We are extraordinarily bold because in the new covenant work, there is glory, more glory, surpassing glory, unrestricted, unlimited, unveiled access to God. Paul says, how can I not be bold? And this is really helpful, I think, instructive for us. We often think boldness um, is part of our character. Um, if you're extroverted or you're outgoing or you're articulate, uh, you are bold. But do you notice, Paul, he mentions nothing about himself. He speaks all about the new covenant. See, boldness is not located in the individual. It is found in the new covenant. And so Paul says, if you only knew, if you realize the unrestricted, unveiled, overwhelming glory that is in the new covenant speech, the weighty presence of God, you will be bold because there's unveiled glory for all. And so if you grasp a bit of that, that as you speak about Jesus, that is where God's glory is resting, what do you do? Well, Paul says, well, you will speak plainly. You will speak plainly. And that brings us to our third point. There's unveiled glory found in plain speech about Jesus Christ as Lord. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, having this mercy by the mercy of ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgrace through underhanded ways, refused to practice cunning or to temper with God's word. But by open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. See, Paul is explaining why he can boldly speak plainly, uh, openly about Jesus. Because if when I speak about Jesus, that is where the unveiled glory of God is, why would I lose heart, Paul says. If open statement about Jesus is where the glory is found, why would I change it? Why would I tweak it? See, underhand cunning or deceptive speech, words that temper with God's word, there is no glory of God there. Paul says, why would I change it? I want to go where the glory is. See, half-truths, Jesus, but no judgment, or Jesus, but no repentance. There's no glory in those words. Kevin DeYoung, quite a well-known American speaker, he said, a half-gospel is a false gospel. Jesus loves you the way you are. A message of easy acceptance is a false gospel. The true gospel is a call to repent and believe, to turn to God in Christ from your old life of sin. But then we say to Paul, Paul, what if people are offended? What if the people I'm speaking to uh, for many years I still reject? Um, how do I not lose heart? Well, Paul says this, the issue is not in the plain speech, but the devil. Look at verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory, the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Nothing wrong with plain speech. Um, it is the devil who blinds unbelievers. But for some of them who listen and hear and respond, it is an act of creation. The same God who in the beginning said, let there be light, is creating light in us. Look at verse 5. Sorry, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says this is the work that we have as we speak 
that is where God's glory is. A miracle of new creation happens as we speak. Unveiled glory is found in plain speech about Jesus Christ as Lord. And so he says, you're bold. We are very bold to speak. We've done very well. Let's try to draw things together. See, we started by asking, where will we find courage to speak? Especially when the alternative staying silent, a tweaking with the word, offers the opportunity to shine. And the thing to realize is that courage comes from understanding what happens when you speak, or what is actually happening when you speak. And when you go back from your lunch break, and you tell your colleague who's asked you what do you learn over lunch, uh, you say, you meet God. You know you meet God as you speak of Jesus. Isn't that really profound? And you have that conversation. And it's that speech that in it has the unveiled access, the glory of God found in that speech. I'm guessing some of us uh, watched the coronation over the weekend. And some of us, I guess you might call it a glorious affair. Uh, the architecture, the intricate design, the choir, the singing, the voices, and the man himself, uh, the guy in, in ropes, the golden crown, scepter, rod, globe, lots of stuff that he was carrying around. What would Moses say uh, to that whole shebang? I think Moses would say, excuse me, Charles, make way, Justin. Let me tell you of glory. I saw with my very eyes the glory cloud coming down from heaven, resting on the tabernacle, filling the tabernacle. That is truly glorious. But what would Paul say to Moses? And I'm sure Moses would agree. Paul would say, let me tell you about glory. When Karen spoke to a colleague about Jesus and the coming judgment and the life he offers, that, Paul says, that is glorious. That is truly glorious. That is where the unrestricted, unveiled, overwhelming glory of God is found. And so do you realize what happens when you speak? What is actually happening? That the very presence of God is there in that speech. And doesn't this help us when the alternative to temper or to dumb down the message or to stay silent. Because staying silent, it offers the opportunity to be glorious, uh, glorious in this world, to look really flashy and really impressive. And Paul says you need to realize that there is no glory at all. Uh, there's no glory in what the world has to offer. There are only two forms of glory. In the old covenant, there was some glory. But in the new covenant, there was surpassing, overwhelming glory. Uh, the world, the fleshiness that the world has to offer, there is no glory at all. And so this is why we do what we do here at Covenant Garden Talks. Uh, this is the ministry of the open testimony, the open word of God. Uh, we are very bold to tell you what we think is true, what the word says. Uh, we don't temper, we don't tweak, we don't shrink back. But it's also why we encourage you to be very bold to speak. Because as you open your mouth with your plain speech in your office, that's where the source of glory of God is found. It's only there where courage can be found. And so, again, my aim is to persuade you to kind of reorient your lives around this work. Uh, this work where the glory of God is found. And again, I'm not sure how it will look like for each one of you. We're all in different circumstances. Uh, for some of you, it may mean giving money uh, to support uh, the work of speaking the gospel all around London and the world. But I think for many of us, what is most costly is not money, 
but time. It may mean taking on some less responsibility at work, perhaps have to free up more time to speak and not to be lazy, but to free up more time to speak. And for some of you, maybe it means dropping down one day from five days to four days to creating more space to be speaking about him. And maybe even for some of you, might be might be to give up your job and explore the option of doing this full time. Again, it will be different from each one of us. But remember, if the new covenant speaking ministry is where the unveiled, unrestricted glory of God is found, it cannot, it cannot be an optional extra. Well, where we find courage to speak, well, it's in the unveiled overwhelming glory of new covenant speech. That's kind of all that we have for today. It does kind of raise a question, right? So if this is so glorious, as what Paul has been saying, why does it look, or why does it appear so inglorious? It looks weak. It looks a bit like a loser. It looks like Paul, or it looks like me, or it looks like you, with half-hearted speech and often inadequate. But why does it look that way? I look at chapter 4, verse 7. Because we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. But why do things look so inglorious? If you want to find out, you need to come back next week. Why don't I pray? Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Our Father, we pause and wonder at the, the mystery and the majesty of what happens when we speak of your Son. And we pray and we ask that you might give us a real grasp of what is truly happening when we speak of him. Please, will you give us real courage, not so much in ourselves, but in this great covenant of yours. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.